Friends, and also uh, there's a flyer regarding children's ministry. One of the ways we supply uh, just some of the needs that they have is, is through you. So if you're able to median those needs, uh, you can bring those in next week. So if you're remaining in here, we are going to resume our series in Hebrews. So I am super excited about this. If you know, we started Hebrews back in February, roughly, of last year. Then when we hit the summer months, we took a little bit of a break. And now we're jumping back in, and we're going to be in chapter 7. Now, real quick, uh, the goal today was to do the entire chapter. We will not make it through the entire chapter. And so, let's see, uh, the left-hand side of your bulletin is the only section we will get through. The right side will be next week, part two. Um, so, but what I want to do is I want to begin with kind of a recap of, of, of the book of Hebrews and who this church is, why it's being written to. And if you remember, one of the, on the very first Sunday we began this series, we said we really technically don't know who the author is, who he's writing to, and, and where they're located. Now, there's good, good guesses that we can make, and there's some hints, but we don't know for certain those things. Most likely, the church is made up of Jewish converts who have been experiencing suffering and persecution. And in chapter 5... We're going through there. We see that they have ceased to mature in their faith. The author said to the church, you've become dull of hearing. They need someone else to teach them again the basic principles of the oracles of God. They need milk, not solid food. So he's saying, look, rather than progressing, you've, you've actually regressed and, and you're acting like babies in your faith. And so we have a group of believers who are in trials and yet not strong in their faith. And because of their immaturity, they have begun to entertain the idea of going back to Judaism. After all, Judaism was legal, and if they reverted back to it, they would no longer experience the trials and the pains and the persecution that have so disrupted their lives. Now, I just want you to think how this connects to us today. Everyone here, we, we, we've experienced trials. We've experienced suffering. Now, we may have not specifically suffered for being a Christian. Maybe you have. But we know what pain is. And we know pain and hurt and suffering often causes us to begin to question, what do we really believe? And so, while God uses trials to strengthen us, and we see that all throughout his word, we know that Satan wants to use them to destroy our faith. And the Bible is clear. We have an enemy. Satan is his name. In John 15, verse 19, Jesus said this, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And what we understand as we look through God's word is that Satan is sneaky. He's crafty. He knows our faith is not usually destroyed by one attack maybe by 10 or 20 or 50 or 100 attacks. If you think of a, like a termite, one termite is not going to destroy a house. But a colony of termites, as they come in, will begin to weaken the house. And, and the problem is the house might look really good from the outside, but it's weak and it's fragile on the inside. And a small wind, a tremor, could send it come crashing down. And... There are many people in the church who look good 
on the outside, but on the inside, they're not really sure what they believe. They're, they're fragile in their faith. There's hurt, there's pain, there's pressure. Um, this can be from relationships or just circumstances that have caused people to doubt their faith in Jesus Christ and question, should I be a Christian? Is it worth it? Should I continue on in this faith? And if that's you, then I, I just pray that this message would be used to strengthen you. And if that's not you, I guarantee you, you know people who struggle in their faith. There are people in every single church today, all throughout the world, that many of them are fragile on the inside and they're not sure of what they believe because of pains and pressures and hurts and circumstances and so many trials that they're in. They're weak, they're fragile. They need to be strengthened. And so, so what's the solution? What is it that the author is going to do for this church 2,000 years ago? What is it that we need for us and our faith that we would stand firm? We need a strong foundation. And so we need to know the meaty truths of the gospel. Remember, the church has gone back to milk. It's not on meat. So he's saying you need to progress. You need to get to the meat, the thick, juicy steak parts of the gospel. And so this is the strategy of the author. From chapter 1, the author has been showing the greatness of Jesus. He has showed that he's greater than, than Joshua, greater than angels, greater than Adam, greater than Moses. He's wanting the church to see, if you return to Judaism, if you abandon Jesus and Christianity, that would be absolutely foolish. It would be like trusting in a shadow rather than the reality, the object of our faith. And so to help us understand the truth that, we can, uh, that Jesus is our great high priest, he's going to take us to one of the most mysterious figures in the Old Testament. He's going to take us to a guy named Melchizedek. Now this guy only shows up twice in the Old Testament. Genesis 14, Psalm 110. And he's absolutely essential to the argument the author is making. In fact, we could say chapter 7, 8, 9, the first part of chapter 10 is the essential main part of the book of Hebrews. And it all hinges on us understanding who Melchizedek is. And so... Um, so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at who this guy is and how he helps us understand Jesus as our greater high priest. Because the main point today is that Jesus is the eternal high priest who completely saves us from our sins. And so what I want to do now is, is I'm going to read our passage. So I want to invite you to stand. We stand at the reading of God's word here. And we do so to remind us that this word is from God's, is with God's authority, breeds out from God for our benefit, that we'd be corrected, that we'd be trained for every, every work that God would have us do. So chapter 7, verses 1, and we're just going to go through verse 21. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. 
And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though they are also descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? rather than the one named after the order of Aaron. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For his witness of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through, through which we draw near to God. And is not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Let me pray. Father, Father, we come to you now. And Lord, I just ask that by your grace and mercy that you would give us wisdom. Lord, may your Holy Spirit work inside each and every one of us that we would understand the truth of your word this morning, that it would nourish our souls, that it would strengthen our faith, that it would fortify our hearts and our souls against the very temptations that we face each and every day. Lord, if there are those who are hurting here today, or struggling in their faith, Lord, I pray that you use this text, your word, as a means of strengthening and solidifying our faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. And for if anyone is here who does not yet know you, I pray that they would see the truth of who your Son is, why we need him, and why there is no other way but Jesus Christ in which we are saved. In your name, amen. You all may be seated. So we're going to start. The first question is just, who is Melchizedek? And, and to say, uh, to begin, I, I want to liken him to like a comet that just simply streaks across the sky. You see it, it goes across the sky, you're like, wow, that's neat, and then it's gone. That's kind of like Melchizedek. He shows up in Genesis 14, we go, oh, that's cool, and, and then it's gone. And it doesn't appear again until Psalm 110. And that's the only two times he appears until we get to the book of Hebrews where he appears with great frequency, especially here in chapter 7. So let's begin with a few things that we know that the author here tells us. Number one, he's the king of Salem. 
Salem is the word shalom, which means he's the king of peace. This will also become known as Jerusalem later. His name also means king of righteousness. So we have the king of peace, the king of righteousness, clearly references to what Isaiah says of Jesus, as Jesus will come as the king of peace and the king of righteousness. But we also see he's the priest of the most high God. Now, there's just a ton of questions that we could ask here that we're not given any information to. Like, how do we have a Canaanite priest at this time to the Most High God? The priesthood hasn't even been established yet. And who is this guy outside of Abraham who has somehow received revelation from God that he would know who God is and is a priest to him? Those are questions that we're just not given any answers to. But what we we do need to see is that we have here in the Old Testament a king and a priest. Now, this is super rare. In fact, there is no other king priest in the entire Old Testament. In fact, there is only one other king priest in the Bible. Do you know who that is? That's right. It's the Sunday school answer. It's okay to be a little bold. Now it's Jesus. It's not Nebuchadnezzar. It's Jesus. Melchizedek is the is the only king priest in the Old Testament who leads us then to understand Jesus is the king priest, the true king priest in the New Testament. Now, when you look at Israel, the king and the priest, those positions were separated and there was no mixing of them. The kings came from the line of Judah, priests came from the line of Levi. And in fact, if you remember, 2 Chronicles 26, King Uzziah, one day he goes into the temple, and he's going to offer incense. And the priests come in, and they're like, no, you can't do this. And he's like, no, I'm going to do this. And God curses him at that moment, and he gets leprosy. The king was trying to take the role of a, of a priest, hold both positions. And that was not to be done. And so he was cursed by God right then. So other than... Um, or Melchizedek is the only king priest we have in the entire Old Testament. So we need to see that he is a pattern pointing us to the ultimate and greater king and priest, Jesus Christ. But what's interesting here is that the role of kingship is not really what the author, is not really what the author emphasizes at all in Hebrews. Rather, he's interested in his role as high priest. In fact, in verse 3, we see that he holds what appears to be an eternal priesthood. So the text says he, in our, in our Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3, he is neither father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end. Now, some people will take this literally and say, well, that means that Melchizedek was a Christophany in the Old Testament. That he is an Old Testament appearing of Jesus Christ. So Jesus came clothed like a man in the Old Testament, and that's who Melchizedek is. And, and that's what some people believe, and you're not going to really like, go crazy theology if that's what you believe. I, I don't think that's what the author is actually communicating. Um, I think the author is just simply saying, in Genesis, we're given no genealogy of this man. Genesis presents him as if he has eternally existed, as if he has an eternal priesthood. Because what's interesting is when you go into Genesis, there's a lot of genealogies. All the important people we have genealogies of. Adam, Noah, Seth, um, 
Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Ishmael, Esau. We have genealogies of all these guys, but Melchizedek and what we will see who is far greater than these people has no genealogy. So I think the author is just simply saying that Melchizedek appears as if he has this eternal priesthood. Now, in order to understand the role of Melchizedek in the Bible and why the author considers him so incredibly important, we need to know a little bit of when he first appeared in Genesis 14. And so I want to encourage you, read Genesis 14 later, the whole story. I'm just going to summarize it here. Again, when we try to preach through almost an entire chapter, it's hard to say everything about everything, so we got to Pick and choose a little bit. But in Genesis 14, we have five kings that rebel against four kings. All right? Five against four. Um, the five kings lose. So the four kings end up defeating them, and they take them captive, them and their possessions. And one of the people who lived in Sodom was taken captive, and his name was Lot. Now, Lot was, was Abraham's nephew. And so when Abraham hears of this, he takes 300, now just get this, he takes 318 men whom he has trained for war. And he's going to go against the four kings who just defeated five kings. Now, does it even seem like he's going to have a chance? Like, it seems like he, there's no chance. We, we got just Abraham who's trained people by himself. He's not a warrior, but he trains these people. They go and they defeat the four kings. They bring back Lot. And so this story just clearly is given so we could see the hand of God is upon Abraham. The promises that God gave him in Genesis 12 that through Abraham he will create a great nation. God is holding true. He is giving victory to Abraham wherever it is that he goes. Abraham is this great man whom God has placed much, much favor upon. But then... On his way home, Abraham encounters a man named Melchizedek. And in verse 1 of our text, we see that Melchizedek blesses Abraham, which we're told in verse 7, the author interprets that as saying, the greater always blesses the inferior. So that's hint number one of what we're supposed to understand about Melchizedek. And then we are told Abraham gave a tithe, a tenth of everything that he had taken, and he gives it to Melchizedek, which then the author in verses 8 and 9 points out, that's as if Levi, who comes from the line of Abraham, also gave a tithe to Melchizedek. So the point is, is that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham and the entire Levitical priesthood, which comes from Abraham, Melchizedek stands as a greater figure than both of these. And so, you know, I, I, I'm not 100% sure, but I think I would say Adam is the greatest figure in the Old Testament, and Melchizedek is the second, because Melchizedek's better, greater than everyone else, right? Chris, affirm me. Am I, am I off? Is Adam... I don't know which one to do with Adam or Melchizedek. Like, they're both seen as these incredibly important people. But Melchizedek holds this important role over Abraham and thus over the 12 tribes. And so the point is, he's greater than the Levitical priesthood. Now, why is that important? 
Because it's essential for the argument that he's making. In verse 11, the author is going to show show, there's a deficiency with the Levitical priesthood. And that's why we need a greater priest, not from Levi, but one who comes like Melchizedek. Now, when I say deficient, I in no no way mean that God made a faulty system, as if God made a mistake, but simply that the sacrificial system in the law of the Old Testament was not a means of salvation. That is why we need a greater priest, one who offers a perfect sacrifice so we could truly be forgiven of our sins. In fact, that's, that's what the Old Testament actually anticipates. If you were to go to Psalm 110, which the author of Hebrews quotes throughout the book, and will do so in this chapter, that's the only other time that Melchizedek will show up in the Old Testament. And we read this in Psalm uh, 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Psalm 110 is about someone from the line of David, a king, also becoming a priest. So the Old Testament anticipates this greater priest, this greater king who's one day going to come, which we know ultimately is Jesus Christ. So to recap, Melchizedek is the only king priest in the Old Testament. He's greater than Abraham, Levitical priesthood, maybe Adam, but don't quote me on that one. We need a greater, we need a greater priest like Melchizedek, who can truly deliver us from our sins because the Levitical priesthood was not able to do so. Um, So let me just give two reasons that the author says why Levitical priesthood was not sufficient. Number one, he lets us know forgiveness was not possible. If you look at verse 11, it says, Now if perfection had been attainable, through Levitical priesthood, for, it, for under it, the people received law, what further need would there have been for another priest after the order, order of Melchizedek? His point is, Levitical priesthood is not perfect. And the way it uses the word perfect here is not meaning maturity or complete, but it means to put someone in position where he can stand before God or come near to God. When you look at the Old Testament and the sacrificial system, It's not about people coming near to God. In fact, there was only one person, one time of year, who could go into the Holy of Holies, which is where it was said that God dwelled, and that was the high priest. Everyone else had to remain outside the temple. So under the sacrificial system, while people were in proximity to God, they weren't brought near into his very presence, But what we have here now, under a greater priest, which we'll see in a little bit, is we can come into the very presence of God at all times. And so, um, in fact, verse 18 will emphasize the insufficiency of the Old Testament sacrificial system. It'll say that the law was weak and useless. Now, the word weak means it lacked power. The word useless means it was unable to to effect salvation. So again, in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system was not the means in which we received true forgiveness. It was all a shadow pointing 
to the much greater reality that one day a true priest would come and offer the ultimate sacrifice that would bring forgiveness of sins. So number one, forgiveness was not possible through the Levitical priesthood. It pointed to the one true great priest who would make the perfect sacrifice. Number two, Levitical priests continued to die. Look at verse 23. It said the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. We need a lot of them because they keep dying. They're under the effect of sin. They're subject to the punishment of sin, which is death. And so there's no priest who makes a perfect sacrifice who's able to continue to minister for the people of God. He keeps dying, so therefore he keeps needing to be replaced. What we really need is a king who, or a priest who will reign eternally, offering a perfect sacrifice so that under his priesthood we would always be able to be forgiven, which we'll see comes through Jesus. Those are two reasons that the author points out it was insufficient. Now, I know that when we start talking about priesthood, there's many of us and we just go, huh, that's just like that important Old Testament thing, right? Like many of us don't really encounter the word priest or priesthood in our, in our daily lives, in our daily vocabulary. In fact, unless if you're Catholic, you really might not ever even hear the word priest very much. In our Western culture, uh, that role of priest, that terminology is not used. Um, let me ask you this. Just think about this for a moment. Why do we need a priest? Just think about that. Why is it we need a priest? Is a priest important for us today? Just think through that. And you might just be like, ah, honestly, I don't think it is. Let me ask it this way. I think asking it this way kind of helps the, the answer become more evident. On what basis do you think, as a sinful person, you have the right to come before the all-powerful, holy, eternal creator God? Like how, how do you have that right? What gives you that ability to appear before him. You, you and I know that if we were to go to appear before the president right now, that wouldn't happen. There's, there would be layers of things we would have to go through just to get to him. In fact, even from that, just to get to the governor. The higher the authority, usually the, the lack of contact and, and the greater distance there is between the people and him. And so, as a sinful people who have rebelled against God, who is perfectly holy and what the children are learning today has created everything and therefore has authority over everything what gives you the right me the right to think that we can just walk into his presence so i think if we begin to frame it as the bible frames it and we begin to think biblically about it understanding that he is the maker of all things, the creator of all things, the one who is sovereign over all things, the king of all things. And we go, well, I don't really have the ability to go before him. I'm not worthy to. Which is why we need a priest, a greater priest, who brings us into the very presence of God. And when we come to the book of Hebrews, there's some words that are used all throughout the book. The words 
draw near. In fact, look at verse 19. Jesus is a better hope that we would draw near to God. Verse 25, Jesus intercedes for all who draw near to God. Chapter 4, verse 16, earlier in Hebrews, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of God. Chapter 10, verse 19, it's going to use different words, but notice, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, to draw near to God, is what he's saying. All throughout the book of Hebrews, he's saying you and I have absolute confidence. We can come in the very presence of our God, of our creator, of the king, of the ruler of all things. Why? On the basis of Jesus Christ as our greater high priest. That's the argument. How did he become the greater high priest? Well, because he follows this pattern of Melchizedek. He's eternal. And he holds both king and priest. He's the living one. He will never die, and he will offer one perfect sacrifice that will be acceptable for all times. And so uh, your bulletin has six reasons uh, why Jesus is the greater high priest. You get two today. Because after I got to this part, I was like, how can we go through the rest of them? Um, so here it is. And, and, and I want you to remember the context. Hurting church struggling in their faith, maybe looks good on the outside, fragile on the inside, weak, questioning. And the things that we're going to go over right now, he says, these are absolutely essential for you to stand firm. Absolutely essential. So, so no matter where you're at today, we need to know these truths. These truths are meant to strengthen our faith, fortify our faith, are meant to nourish our heart and our soul so that when pain, when temptations, when trials, when persecution comes, we will stand firm, not because of our strength, but because the grace God has given us through his word that we know. Number one, Jesus' priesthood is eternal. We have to see this. Remember, one of the problems of Levitical priesthood is that they keep dying. They're like you and I. They're mortal. They're subject, they're subject to the effects of sin. But in verse 3, we read that Melchizedek continues as a priest forever. And then we're told in verse 16 that Jesus is a priest by the power of an indestructible life. The reason Jesus is the greater high priest is because he's eternal. He went to the cross, he died, and he rose again. The fact that he rose, we can't just stop at his death. He died and rose. He conquered death. Revelation 1.18, it quotes Jesus, and Jesus says, I am the living one. Right now, he is living, and do you know what he holds in his right hand? The keys of death and Hades. He has all authority over death. All authority. John 11.25, before Jesus raises Lazarus, he says, I am am the resurrection and the life. Amen, Amen indeed. And, and we need to understand that when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and life, I am the living one, he's not talking like he possesses life, like you and I might have 20 bucks. Hopefully we have 20 bucks. Like if I have money in my pocket, I, I have that, I can give it to you, and then I don't have that anymore. It's not intrinsic to who I am. But Jesus is life. 
In fact, the only reason that we have eternal life is because the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, dwells in you and I. There is no life apart from Christ. So we need to understand the very first thing, he is the living one. He is the resurrection and life. He is eternal life. This is why Jesus will say that he is the living one, the resurrection of the life. This is why he will say he's the living water, that he, is the, that he is the bread. He's the one who nourishes our souls, who sustains us, who is alive right now, who will never, ever, ever die, but will remain as priest for all of eternity. And the author doesn't want us to miss this. So in verse 17, he quotes Psalm 110, and he says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he's saying, remember that guy who looked like he had this eternal priesthood? That's who Jesus is. The whole point of Melchizedek was to be a pattern pointing us to one that we really need. Verse 24, he writes, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Dead priest can't save you. He can't save you. Their sacrifices aren't sufficient. They aren't sufficient in and of themselves. As long as Jesus is priest, his sacrifice will be sufficient. Meaning there will never, ever be another sacrifice made for your sins. Do you know that? One priest who reigns forever made one sacrifice that's perfect forever. How do we know that? Takes us to the next point. Jesus' priesthood is based upon the unchanging promises of God. The priest, and, and he makes this clear in the text, the priests of Levi, they become priests based upon genealogy, based upon their bloodlines, but not Jesus. Verse 21, Jesus is a priest because God has given an oath. Psalm 110 again, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Again, he'll repeat that in verse 28. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. God himself swears that Jesus will forever hold his priesthood. Now remember, and we saw this in chapter 6, God doesn't make oaths. So like we can tell when he's telling the truth and when he's not. Like he's not like, guys, not like last time. But, but this time, really, you can believe me. So he's not sometimes true and sometimes not true or, or sometimes really true and just sometimes less true. God is always completely truthful. But he gives an oath for our benefit that we would have all the more confidence in what he is promising. One commentator said this. Whatever God confirms by an oath becomes something so utterly unchangeable that it's woven into the very fiber of the universe and must remain forever. Isn't that awesome? That was a cool way of just seeing that. Let me just give two implications of this truth. Number one, it means we have confidence that when we believe in Jesus, we are saved and forgiven. That truth never changes. We will not show up to heaven and be denied because we trusted in Jesus. God will never say, oh, I changed my mind. John 14, 6, 
which says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me, is true today, tomorrow, and forever. That will never, ever change. There's no other way to come to God. In fact, to abandon the Christian faith, which is what's at stake here, the author is saying, if you abandon the Christian faith, if you return to Judaism or to anything else, atheism, any other belief system, it would be absolutely foolish because there's no other way to God. You're abandoning the only way to come to God. The world says there's many ways, right? The world has many religions, has many ways, and they might even say it like this. If we picture God at the top of the mountain, you take your trail, I'll take my trail, and eventually we'll, we'll, we'll make our own hike and we'll get to the mountain. In the end, all trails lead to the top. But that's not what the Bible says. It says there's one way to come to God because there's one high priest who's made one sacrifice and there's only one name under heaven in which we are saved. What we see in God's word is we're not even worthy to touch the mountain. And you think you can hike up it to God? We can't even go near the mountain. Think of, think of in the Old Testament. Remember when God reveals himself at the giving of the Ten Commandments? And he's like, don't, don't even let the people touch the mountain or they'll die. We have no right in and of ourselves to come before the mountain. The only reason we get to God is because he comes down the mountain to you and I. And he does so through his son, Jesus Christ, who clothes himself in humanity, that he would be our perfect priest, offer the perfect sacrifice, that would be acceptable to God, and raises three days later, proving that it was acceptable to God, and that only in him is there forgiveness of sins. So he turns and says, you can't abandon Judaism, or you can't abandon Christianity for Judaism. You can't leave the faith. If you leave the faith of Jesus Christ, you leave the only way to come to God. Number two, it gives us clarity in the message of the gospel. First one, it gives us confidence. The second one, it gives us clarity. Jesus saves. That's our message. I think sometimes as Christians, we, we try to make it really complex. Like, what is it that our neighbor really needs? They need to know Jesus. That's what they need. They don't need anything else. They need Jesus. The one truth we preach is that there is no other name than Jesus Christ under heaven in which we can be saved. So whether you're in America, in Washington, any other state, in South America, whether you're in India, in China, whether you're in Australia or any of the countries in Africa, the answer for every single person is Jesus. That's what they need. Which is why we can say here today that we are a local body of believers, but we're very much connected to the global body everywhere in this world right now. And we are united by one name, the name of Jesus Christ, who offers forgiveness of sins. And so we must remember, whomever we encounter, what they need is Jesus. The world will say, no, it's something else. The world will say, well, you know, you had Jesus, but that didn't really work out. But what we need is Jesus and grow in our understanding of who he is. That he is our perfect, eternal priest. And next week as we gather, we'll look at different truths 
that we also learn about why he's the greater high priest. But I want you to consider just what we've seen here this morning. And when we step back and we see the context of the whole book, we have a church that's hurting. And they're hurting because they've not grown in their faith. The trials are not what hurts. It's their immature faith. Like don't, the trials have exposed the weak faith, which then has made them vulnerable to beginning to question their faith and leaving Christianity. The solution is the author gives them thick, juicy truths of the gospel. That's the solution. And he brings them in to the very reality of who Jesus Christ is, that their hearts, that their very souls would be nourished and that they'd be strengthened. A lot of times we say, well, maybe we just need to take it easy in Christianity. I don't want to rush in. That, that, those are two advanced doctrines for me. What we need is to jump into the very truth and the meat of his word. And there might be things that we don't understand, but in time we, we grow in more and more understanding. Every day we live in this world, our faith is under attack. Whether by Satan or by the sin that dwells within us, we face an endless onslaught of attacks that tempt us to trust in something other than Jesus. The world will tell us every single day that he's not sufficient. And when we, when we begin to entertain those doubts, they begin to look true, and we will begin to buy into them. We'll think that maybe there is another way to God. Maybe we'll say, maybe he's not really there. After he, If he was there for us, we wouldn't be going through these trials. Maybe his blood doesn't cover your sins, or at least not all of your sins. He will whisper lie after lie after lie after lie into your heart. To lure you away. And the solution is that we come into the word of God. And that we encourage one another. Which is one reason. One reason we emphasize community here a lot. We emphasize table groups. And this isn't like just to push that. But we need one another. We need eyes on each other. I need you to be watching me and me to be watching you. To encourage each other. So that when those lies are coming in, and we begin to entertain, someone would be able to come and apply the truth of God's word to us. Look, if we're not in community, like I, I don't know why I do it. I watch YouTube. I was watching like the lions attack the wildebeest the other day. Like they always get the one off by himself. That's what happens with sin every time. If you're off by yourself, if you're not in community, you just pray. It's exactly what you are. You're thinking you're strong, which means you're already trusting in something other than Jesus. And you're being vulnerable to the very attacks of sin and Satan. So I just want to encourage you, we need one another. If you're not a part of table group, I encourage you to come Saturday night where we start launching them. If you're still not a part of table group, we'll just assign you into one. Um, but we need, we need other people in our lives. To, and, I, and I want to especially say, look, if you're if you're a parent, if you're a father, like you have a role with your family. And your family is to disciple. You don't rely upon junior church. This, what's taking place down, downstairs, comes alongside you. That, that's the only role. We have them one hour a week. If you're entrusting us to solidify the faith of your children, we failed. I'm just going to like, don't, don't do that. 
we come alongside you. And so the role of every parent, I just want to especially say fathers, the role of every parent is that you're coming alongside your children today and every day, helping them to understand the Christian faith. Because you know what it was like to be a student and in the church if you were at, when you were 15 or 16 years old. It's different now, isn't it? The world continues to change. It will only it will only increase in its hostility against the church. The temptations are only going to become more real. But the solution is always the same. It's Jesus. And he's always, always sufficient. So the answer is, is that we come alongside our children. We, we don't give them faith. We don't make them believers. But we trust that the God of the Bible is the one who saves. And he does so through his word. So we just continue to bring the truths of the word to our children, to our families, that we together would be strengthened in our faith. So I want to encourage you, don't rely upon junior church. Don't even rely on table groups as your one and only means. But every day as you're in the Word, you're being corrected, you're being refined, you're being trained. And as a family, you have a role to every day come and strengthen one another. As a church, we seek to come alongside and strengthen one another. We can't be fooled by outward appearances. Remember, a house might look fine, but it's only until when it falls we realize termites had eaten it up. There are many people that we can say, oh, they're probably fine. But we must engage one another. We must be in community with one another. We must ask each other hard questions. Sometimes they feel uncomfortable. But we do so with the purpose of building each other up in love. That together we would stand firm in the gospel against the very lies of Satan that we would boldly draw near to the throne of God, knowing he gives us grace every day, and we long for the day that he returns. Let me pray, and the men are going to come forward, and they're going to dismiss you row by row to come and partake of communion. Our Father, our Father, we come to you now, and we just thank you that you, that you have sent your son Jesus as the greater high priest as the one who has made a perfect sacrifice, as the one who reigns eternal, as the one who will never, ever, ever need to be replaced, as the one who has been made a high priest by your oath. And so, Father, I just pray that today our hearts, our faith, our souls have been strengthened. God, God, we praise you for your son, Jesus. He's the one answer that we all need. And Lord, I pray that we would have clarity and we'd have conviction that as we go out today, we would share the truth of your son, Jesus, with our neighbors, with our friends, with our coworkers, because there's no other name on which we're saved than Jesus, who is our great high priest. Lord, we praise you in your name, Jesus. Amen.